You may know that the European Medicines Agency has recently licensed the first gene therapy for haemophilia. This episode of HemeCast gets into some of the tricky issues around how new treatments like this are funded. Developing treatments for rare conditions like haemophilia is an expensive job. To encourage this, regulatory bodies developed the idea of orphan status, under which companies receive financial incentives to develop treatments for rare diseases. So even though gene therapy for haemophilia has cleared the first hurdle, it is licensed, we don't know what it will cost, and crucially, whether or not health services will be willing and able to pay for it. A few years ago, the FDA approved a gene therapy treatment for thalassemia that had been developed by Bluebird Bio. But Bluebird withdrew their treatment from Europe because the remuneration they were being offered by the payers wasn't enough for them to recover their development costs, operate a successful business, and ensure sustained access for people living with thalassemia. To help us learn the lessons from this, I'm delighted to introduce Nicola Redfern, who had a ringside seat at Bluebird, where she was the UK General Manager and Northern Cluster Lead. Thank you so much for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? It's a pleasure to be here. So I started my working career in a children's hospice as a member of the multidisciplinary team. So my sort of interest and commitment to rare diseases really goes back to the 80s, scarily. But I've been in the pharmaceutical industry now for over 30 years, worked on multiple products, most of them in the cancer or rare disease world, um, and have really, in recent years, focused in on the challenges around reimbursement and ensuring that patients actually can access new innovations as quickly as possible. With my most recent sort of five-year experience being in the gene and cell therapy world where I worked, as you said, for Bluebird Bio. Gene therapy is a really exciting space, I think, to be working in at the moment, particularly in haemophilia. And I think from my perspective, for access to gene therapy for people that don't have access to factor concentrates. So can you just let us know how you got involved with being in gene therapy? So initially, it was through a personal contact who'd already moved to Red Bio. I think, you know, the minute I started talking to them, it was really clear it's a really exciting and innovative space. The science is quite sexy, and we're suddenly in a position where we can potentially cure people in certain disease areas, but definitely make a significant difference to both life expectancy, but also quality of life. Um, and that for me is a real motivator in the sense of we can suddenly really help people who are living with long-term conditions as well as those facing life-threatening scenarios. And I think it's important to say, you know, up front, I'm now an independent consultant and out working with multiple different groups, one of which is CSL Bearing which will be familiar to those of you in the haemophilia space. What I'm expressing today is very much my own personal opinions based on that experience of Bluebird Bio, but also having chaired the ABPI ATMP working group and worked very closely with the gene and cell therapy catapult over the last five or six years. So it's, for me, really exciting space, brings lots of promise and opportunities, but it also brings quite a lot of challenges, which is why I'm continuing post Bluebird Bio to work and focus on this sort of area. So the ABPI are four letters that strike fear through my heart. So well, <laughs> well done for working there. 
So what are the hurdles that companies really now are having to face in getting their innovations, not just through the ABPI, but through people like NICE and all of that into routine practice? It's a really good question. And I think the first thing to say is, yeah, I'm a fan of ABPI. I think the industry groups hold us all to account and make sure we're doing things professionally, but also champion the industry and what we do. And what we do is not easy. Having worked now for 10 different companies, in the industry and consulted with four different organizations. I think every individual company faces different challenges and it depends on the type of product and innovation you're bringing forward, but also specifically to the disease area that you're focused on. But overarching all of that is doing R&D is long and expensive. In the rare disease arena, There's not that many patients always out there. So actually finding the right patients to enroll in clinical trials, getting their commitment, and it is a big commitment for people, but getting their commitment to take part in those trials and then collating that data is not easy. You then, yeah, having got your data, have to go through quite a long process often to get a license through the EMEA or in America, the FDA, now in the UK, the MHRA. But then even when you've got your license, you still need to get the product reimbursed. So you need to persuade payers that it's worth investing in. So just having a license isn't an automatic door opener. And often people who are aspiring to discuss a new innovation in medicine or treatment with their clinicians could still wait another six months, nine months, a year, sometimes longer, before it is available on the market. Lots of different hurdles. Um, There's also hurdles for other people like the NHS. So how do they adapt the service? How do they make sure they've got enough clinics, beds, transplant services? Do they need to set up home care? How's it going to work? And I think one of the things to stress to people on the call today is every gene and cell therapy is different. So it's not a sort of one size fits all. It is something that people need to think about, you know, innovation by innovation to try and work out what impact is it going to have and what do we need to change, relook at our staffing, relook at our budgets, all of those things. So there's challenges for other organizations, not just the pharmaceutical industry or the biotech company. So you've just made me think there, should we be having haemophilia gene therapy centres and skid gene therapy centres and a gene therapy centre for every disease there is? Or should we have gene therapy super centres? Would it be easier? It's a really good question. And I don't think we know the answer yet. I think it's too early to know what the right optimal model is going to be long term. I think whoever's making those decisions needs to keep the people living with the conditions at the center of their thinking, because centralization brings a lot of expertise into one place. And that's usually beneficial for the care and attention people get. And we definitely learn lessons quicker by centralizing things. But obviously, from a practical point of view, if people are needing to go into their local or into hospital for a treatment, The more local it is, often the better. If they're going to be hospitalised for any length of time, the ability for family to support and visit is really important. So there's a whole load of considerations there. So I think 
centralizing would definitely bring expertise into one place, but I think it also adds complexities for the people that we're aspiring to help and benefit and improve the quality of life for. Yeah, and I think maybe perhaps for haemophilia, which although we call it a rare disease, compared to some of the rare diseases is fairly common. Perhaps for those ultra rare diseases where they can have gene therapy, there'll be one or two gene therapy centres, whereas perhaps for haemophilia we'll have more. And I think, you know, that discussion is probably still ongoing from an NHS England perspective. And as more gene therapy options come through for haemophilia, then that will probably be revisited over the next sort of two, three, five, ten years. But I think at least initially having some centres identified when the first gene therapies in haemophilia actually get licensed and reimbursed, having some hospitals set up that can at least start offering it as a choice to patients quickly will be really important. And so we know that the first of the gene therapies for haemophilia is licensed, but isn't yet approved for use. Why does it take so long to get from a license to being able to actually prescribe it? Oh, it's really complicated. Getting your license, the regulators actually assess a product to say, does it work? Does it do what it says on the tin? Are we confident it will do that in the long term? And is it is it safe? So do we understand the safety profile and what are the pros and cons of somebody choosing to have this new treatment? And that's true of anything new that's coming through. Reimbursement is a lot more complex than that in that it tries to look at whether it is worth the country spending its budget, which at the end of the day in the UK is taxpayers' money. And that's it's subtly different in every country because the processes are different, but the ethos and the objectives are very similar. So do we as a country want to spend money on this? And that's technically, it looks at cost effectiveness. But what it means is that a group of people come together, often referred to as payers or decision makers, who look at what is the sort of survival benefits of a new innovation that's coming forward? What are the quality of life gains and benefits that a person living with the condition is going to experience? To some extent, they look at perhaps the benefits for the wider environment or the caregiver, but to a much lesser extent, not necessarily what I think should happen, but that is the methodology that's used today. And it's a much broader discussion. In the UK specifically, there's quite a process behind it to try and drive fairness and familiarity so that people know what's coming next and how to manoeuvre through the process, but it takes months. From a biotech or a pharmaceutical company's perspective, you're often submitting a sort of 350-page dossier supported with a health economics model, which is quite complex to build and do and quite costly. And then you submit that, then you turn up and get quizzed on it, being really simplistic, and it gets ripped to pieces and you get challenged. And then you come back to the table and answer those questions. And all of those discussions then correlate or end up in a place where price is aligned on. So the ultimate end point is agreeing a net price, which in the UK is confidential and in most countries is confidential, to be fair. But 
you negotiate a net price that the payers believe it represents the value that the company is bringing. So I think that leads really nicely into a question about why does it cost so much? So today on Twitter, I have seen that the uh, predicted price for gene therapy for haemophilia A and then haemophilia B in the United States of America is going to be 2 million to 3 million for haemophilia B per patient per dose. So we don't know how much it's going to cost in the UK. It won't be in dollars, but people are talking about a million-ish. Quite a lot of money, except that we know that factor costs a lot. It's not a huge amount to the factor costs over five or 10 years. But why is it a million? Why is it so much? I think it depends how you look at it. And I think yeah, I take you back to the fact that price is negotiated and aligned on based on value. So there's a whole range of things in the background we could talk about. The price of research, the planning, the people costs. These things are not cheap to do, especially in gene therapy at the moment. The manufacturing costs, so the production costs, if you like, are actually quite high. So the the out payments or the outgoings of the biotech companies or the pharmaceutical companies producing these things is actually really high. So that's the first thing to say. And they have to recoup that and cover those costs. Will those costs come down in future as gene therapy becomes more common and the manufacturing costs reduce possibly as more gene therapies are being manufactured? We don't know. We never know. But I think reality is we also pay for innovation, or at least in the UK, we pay based on value. So that value will be determined by, as we've just said, additional life benefits from life expectancy or quality of life. How many years additional benefits do you get? But also, what are they paying out on current treatments and how does that compare? So what cost, if somebody as a person living with a condition comes forward and has a gene therapy, whichever one it is, what cost savings are there in the system by that person having possibly a one-time treatment? And all of those things get taken into consideration. So yes, we hear about US pricing or we hear about list prices of other gene therapies that are on the market in the UK. I think people have to be careful and not assume that is what's being paid because the net pricing that's negotiated is often very different. Often at industry's loss, to some extent, talk to some of the other gene therapy and cell therapy companies that are out there, and they're not necessarily making significant profits out of the gene therapies. They're they're not money-making types of treatments. The innovation is really expensive. So in the UK, we have NICE who... um help us make those decisions about whether we can afford these treatments. Now, we're not part of Europe. That's obviously different. Is that, do you think, going to be to our advantage or is it going to be detrimental? And what impact might that have on clinical trials in the future? So if we're not able to buy commercial product in the future, will that stop people wanting to do research here? So the fact that we're no longer part of Europe doesn't really make a lot of difference to NICE. So NICE has always been a standalone UK-specific organisation. And I have to be careful because it's not even UK-specific. It's England and Wales. And we have the SNC in Scotland that also make independent, similar discussions, similar purpose to their decision-making. 
but often they get there through a different debate or discussion and sometimes reach different decisions. But if anything, nice in the UK gives us a level of stability as we've come out of Europe and is quite a constant in what pharma and biotech is facing. The future difference, if you like, is we now have the MHRA as a regulator as opposed to the EEA. And we have lots of expertise. The EEA used to be based in London. So there's a lot of people in that regulatory space who are experts who live in the UK. So I think we've actually retained some of that talent and insight, which has got to be a positive thing moving forwards. I think the bigger question for me is, as a biotech or as a pharma company, there are decisions and discussions and debates as to where do you launch a new innovation first and which countries do you go to? And if any of those countries are a major obstacle in getting your product reimbursed, that by default makes the companies question whether they invest in trials um, and prioritize that country in future. And reality is a lot of the gene and cell therapies that are coming through are from smaller startup organizations. They are tiny teams, so they do have to make choices. And if you can't get your product to market at all from a reimbursement discussion point of view, or it takes a long time, that does have a knock-on effect in the way companies will view the UK specifically in the future. I think in haemophilia, to some extent, the community is in a better space because you've got some more medium-sized companies or large pharma companies investing in gene therapies in haemophilia, which is perhaps different than some of the other disease areas that we're seeing gene therapies developed for. I think that leads very nicely into then your experience at Bluebird Bio, where they had a lovely gene therapy that isn't available in Europe. Are you able to tell us anything about why that is? Yes. And Bluebird, I'm a big fan of still. I'm very sad by what's happened. They know that I'm being asked and I'm talking to people and sharing my insights. So they are personal insights. But if anybody looks at what Bluebird put out in the public domain, which was in August last year, so 2021, they were in a position where they couldn't viably manufacture and bring their gene therapies to market in Europe. So it wasn't just the UK, it was across Europe at a price that the payers were prepared to pay. Now, the challenge is the payers try and apply the same rules to every product and every disease. Gene therapy is new, it's innovative. If we think about anything else we buy that's new and innovative, we tend to pay a premium for it. That's not how payers generally look at things. So trying to get payers, whether it was in the UK, France, Germany, across Europe, to recognize the value that these treatments were bringing and price accordingly or offer a price accordingly um, was increasingly challenging. So that's why ultimately Bluebird decided to withdraw from Europe and refocus back on the US. I think it's really important. Yeah, it's really exciting. They've recently got FDA approval both for their thalassemia gene therapy and the gene therapy for cerebral adrenoleukodystrophy. And personally, I'm delighted those patients are going to be able to access in the US. But it was absolutely gutting 
and one of the worst times in my career, I think, to have to phone clinicians and patient organisations up here in England and tell them that a treatment that the regulators had said would work is not going to be available and they can't have it. And ultimately, you know, in thalassemia, and I do see some similarities in that with the haemophilia community, people living with a long-term condition whose quality of life is severely limited when I look at it and whose life expectancy on average was half what I'm sat here expecting my life expectancy to be. We're being told this was no longer going to be a choice. And that, you know, that was heart-wrenching and still is heart-wrenching. But I think there's other lessons that we need as a community to learn about how do you then tackle those things as other gene therapies come through in other disease areas. So there's lots of lessons around yeah, how do we all as a community get behind something? How vocal are we? How do we ensure that we think really carefully about how, how many patients are, yes, within the license indication, but how many people are actually going to want it? What is the service that we need to provide? How many people are going to want it on day one that somebody says yes and going to rock up at their clinician's door and go, count me in? How many are going to sit back and wait and think about it for a bit? And how many people are never going to want it because they're actually quite comfortable with their current standard of care or just they're really cautious individuals and don't want to take that risk because none of us in the gene and cell therapy world have long, long-term data. So for some people, that will be too big a leap of faith. And I think that's we need to recognize all of those responses are valid and appropriate for the individuals. However, even if there's one person or five people in the community with a particular disease who might want it, who are struggling with current standard of care, and this may be appropriate for, you have to champion, as a community, you have to champion something and shout loudly and make people aware of what are the challenges that some of the community face today. And what are those challenges on people's worst days and average days? Whereas we tend to focus often for the benefit of people who've recently been diagnosed or whose children have recently been diagnosed, we tend to focus on the positives and the hope and the you can still do type messaging, not the this is shit or you're going to have this many medicines in your bathroom cabinet or they're going to be really tired and fatigued on X number of days a month and that sort of messaging. And sadly, it's the more negative or challenging messaging that when you're going through the reimbursement conversations, you really need to get out there. So I think within the haemophilia community, there's quite a lot of excitement about the prospect of gene therapy. What do you think are the key lessons for us as treaters and NMOs and advocates, patients, as well as the patients themselves, in making sure that everybody's voice is being heard? I think my main recommendation is make some noise, join together as a community and be vocal for the benefit of those who might want it and who it might be appropriate for. And I think there's multiple ways to do that. So it it depends what role people are playing, whether you're a clinician, a nurse, or part of a patient organization or an individual who wants to engage in a whole discussion. There are options during the NICE process to formally engage. People can 
submit letters at certain stages of the NICE process. The royal colleges that the clinicians are members of or the nurses are members of are often considered stakeholders in the NICE process. And the royal colleges frequently do put submissions in. Make sure your voice is heard at your royal college. Go and talk to them. Make sure they really know what it's like. And I think do th- as a as patient organisation and communities, do think about your worst days and your average days, and make sure those are known. Because if all is seen by the media, or your local politician, or by people who sit on nice boards is the good news stories on the websites, that doesn't necessarily help your case. And that's really tough because you want to give hope and you want to be optimistic and not everybody's life with a long-term condition is awful. Or it might only be awful one day a month and fine the rest of the time. So it's getting that balance and making sure that balanced view is put across. I think also... Yes, specifically perhaps for the patient community who will often submit and put a dossier in and a documentation into NICE is think about data, not just case studies. Sadly, payers have become, I want to say, immune or hardened to the really emotional case study type approach and perhaps, to be fair to them, have to be because they're looking at different things every day of the week and that's part of their role. but have data. So talk about X percent of our members experience this. Eight out of 10 of our members report this back. So think about what percentage of your community can you claim to represent? And of that community, how many of them would experience some of the things you want to highlight? Because then it becomes more data and facts driven in your response rather than just a case study response. The other thing I would say to the community is, yeah, sign up. Nice meetings happen in a public domain. They are online, post or still mids COVID, perhaps. Some people's minds, life is easier in the sense of it's easier, especially if you live with a long-term condition that limits you. It's easier to actually watch what happens at Nice than it perhaps was in the past because you can sign up as a public observer. Sign up, look at what other conditions that, they're looking at that perhaps you have some understanding or empathy towards and listen in, get an experience of how it actually operates and the sorts of questions the payers are going to be asking both the industry, but also the clinicians. And there are clinical experts who are there. So find out who those clinical experts are that are going to be quizzed, talk to them, express your views, make sure they're representing your views, whether you're somebody living with a disease or you're a clinician in a different hospital go and talk to them. And also I would say to talk to your local politicians. Make sure that there is an awareness of how important this decision is. Now, guess thinking about that from a haemophilia-specific perspective, with the blood inquiry, there has been a very different relationship, both with politicians and decision makers, but also around the comfort in embracing new treatments that are going to come. But I would say use those relationships to your advantage. You know who some of these people are. Individually, you still have that choice as to whether you're going to want the gene therapy once it's available, whichever gene therapy it is. And that choice is important, and it will be an individual discussion between 
somebody living with a condition, possibly their family members if they want to involve them or they're a child and their treating clinician and the nurses that support them in clinic. So it is individual choice. It's not something that's necessarily going to be done unknowingly. But if you think any of your peer group are going to want this as a choice, other people need to know it's important. And I think that's a really nice point to bring in nursing and nurses and physios and physiotherapists and everything that we all do that isn't the doctor clinician. So we perhaps are the ones who have a slightly different relationship with people with haemophilia and they perhaps tell us slightly different things. So perhaps we will be the ones who are advocating for them or supporting them a little bit more. And I just wondered whether you sought collecting qualitative data to put forward towards knives and submissions for the future is worthwhile rather than just numbers of 20% of patients did this? Com- completely. Yes, yes and yes. I think often my mum was a nurse, my grandma was a nurse. I've worked with lots of nurses during my career. And no disrespect to the clinicians, but they're busy. It's often the nursing staff who are the constant in a patient or a family's journey through a disease. And they're often the people that have got a little bit more time in a clinic or in a home care setting to actually listen and hear what day-to-day experience is like. So I've worked on over 30 different submissions to NICE during my career. I can't claim I've written them or done them because that's always been my team, but I've read them all and I've watched how the process is pulled through. And very rarely do you see the nurse's voice come through strongly in that. But personally, I think, especially in the haemophilia world, as I've got to know it, and in any long-term chronic conditions that people are living with over decades, nurses have got a lot to offer. And the more data you can collect, whether it's on this number of patients, as we said before, experience this, or it's around the time that things take, because your perception may be very different than what it says on the label of the product. Somebody may be having a 20-minute infusion, but they might actually be in hospital for three hours. That's a very different perception. People having an infusion to a payer might sound very easy. We all know that they get infections in the lines, or you might have to stab them three or four times before you actually are able to take blood. There's a whole host of things that I think nurses see in clinic, which is around the reality of treating somebody, which can really help. And I think focus not only on what the future might look like, but think about what's today's reality, because what the payers do is they assess something against what happens today. So collecting that real-world evidence around today's standard of care is priceless. I completely agree. So those people listening will not be at all surprised by the next statement that I'm going to make, which says that this is a real area where nurses can do research in its biggest umbrella. So it could be an auditor service evaluation, something about collecting information about people as they have gene therapy, if they get to have it in the UK in the future for haemophilia, rather than the clinical trial data that we collect in clinical trials. I think the data that we get as nurses is much richer. And people will know that Simon Fletcher is doing a PhD at the moment on patients having gene therapy for haemophilia. And I'm not saying everybody needs to do a PhD, but there's so much that we could be collecting and adding to the story 
of gene therapy, which With, I think would be really important. But I think, Kate, also collect it on what you're doing today. Don't wait till the gene therapies are coming through and collect it. Collect what reality looks like today and then go to the Royal College of Nursing and say, can you champion this during the NICE process? Can you make sure our voice as nurses is heard during those discussions about what people face today every time they show up for a treatment or what they experience at home? Because I think some of the haemophilia patients often are able to have their treatments at home level. But what does that mean? It's, it's less visible as if it's at home and people think that makes it easier, but I'm not sure that's always the case. So make sure those voices are heard. Get the Royal College of Nursing or as a group that you represent as nurses, go to the Royal College of Medicine or the Royal College of Hematology and say, can you represent this information when you put your submission into NICE? Because you've got valid perceptions. Fabulous. That's two challenges, one from me and one from Nicola. Nicola, thank you very much. Is there anything else you wanted to tell us today? I don't, I don't know about tell. I think, let's go back. This is really sexy science. It's really interesting. We are on the brink of being able to approach different diseases, a whole host of different diseases in a very different way. Yes, there's going to be lots of unknowns. There's going to be lots of questions. There will be things that perhaps we don't know until 20, 30 years time. But personally, I feel once we get to a point where the science has the ability to make that fundamental shift in the way we approach health and illness, we've got a responsibility, all of us, to make sure that people living with conditions can actually make that choice and access those treatments. So whatever the hurdles are, and there will be hurdles for all of the haemophilia treatments that are coming through, I'm sure, the same as they were for the haemoglobinopathies, the same as there have been as the CAR-Ts have come through, we have to collaborate and we have to all work together so that we battle them as a joint community and hold on to the, hold on to the faith that these things can come forward in clinic and can be a choice for those individuals. Because personally, when I look across all of the different gene and cell therapies that I touch on through my work now and all of the different companies, I think it's all being done with high aspiration and good intent and the ability to make a significant difference to people's lives. And surely that's that's got to be important and worth fighting for. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I think you've had a real insight or given us real insight into lots of things that we perhaps haven't thought about in terms of gene therapy. I think all of the listeners will have really enjoyed it and they should keep watching this space because hopefully in the non-too-distant future, we will have not only a licensed but an available gene therapy and we'll be able to start treating patients outside of clinical trials, which will be really exciting. It's been a complete pleasure, I think, I will be watching with interest. If people want to reach out, I'm on LinkedIn. I check my LinkedIn every day. I'm more than happy to connect with people across the gene and cell therapy space. Or if people have got questions, having listened to the podcast, Kate, if they want to come back to you or other members of the team and you feed them back through to me, then I'm happy to try and answer them if I can. Fabulous. Thank you. As Nicola mentioned, we're more than happy to receive your questions and comments, so please do connect with us on Twitter or LinkedIn, or you can send us an email to hello at hemnet.com. Whether it's about this episode or suggestions for future episode topics, we'd love to hear from you. 
And please do share this episode with your colleagues or peers who may find it interesting. As we roll into season two of Heencast, if you're a regular listener, we'd greatly appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or rating us on Spotify. This goes a long way in helping Heencast reach a wider audience in the bleeding disorders community. Thank you for listening today, and we hope you'll tune in for future episodes. We'll be back very soon. Bye now.